Well, this morning we are continuing what we began last week in 1 Peter chapter 1, talking about our love for the brethren. And I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll begin this morning by reading our passage for us, 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 22, where Peter says this, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. On August 26, 1871, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And his passage was 1 John 4.19, and the title of his sermon was Love's Logic. And listen to what Spurgeon said about the love that Christians are to have for one another. He said this, Now no man is a Christian who does not love Christians. He who being in the church is yet not of its heart and soul, is but an intruder in the family. You see, that is one of the ways that you can tell that there is an intruder in the family of God. If someone claims to be a Christian, but does not love Christians, he is no Christian at all. In fact, John confirmed that for us in 1 John 4.20 where he says this, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In fact, that person who does not love God's children is deceived and is a deceiver. In fact, one commentator says, it is absurd to claim to love the invisible God, but at the same time, not show love to His people. It's absurd. And we saw that last week as we looked at Peter's command for the church to love one another. To love one another with a brotherly love. And an agape love. A self-sacrificing love. And we saw how a person is only able to truly love with a godly agape love when they are enabled to love by the Spirit of God. We saw how this happens at the moment of regeneration when a person is born again. The Spirit of God comes to live within them and they now have the ability to truly love with a genuine agape love. 
But before regeneration happens, before they are born again, they cannot have this true agape love. A true biblical, sacrificial, selfless love that comes only from God. Why? Because they're not connected to the source of agape love. They're not connected to God Himself. But, the moment of regeneration, when a person is born again, they are then enabled to love. And then we saw the manner in which we are called to love. That we're called to love sincerely with a brotherly love. And fervently with an agape love. Love and love with an agape love from the heart, sincerely, fervently, from the heart. That is the manner in which you and I are called and commanded to love one another. This love is to be a genuine love, not some fake, showy kind of love, but a sincere love that is fervent. It is to be a constant love for one another, an all out love that loves at all costs. A love that comes from the heart. Then we saw the recipients of our love. Who is it that we are called and commanded to love? Peter tells us that we are called to love one another. And who is the one another that Peter is referring to? He's referring to the church. The believers in Christ. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is who we are commanded to love. Again, not that we don't love our enemies, that we don't love our neighbors. We are commanded to love them. But there's an obligation for you and I to love one another in the church, believers in Christ. And so, in verse 22, we saw the enablement of our love, the manner of our love, and the recipients of our love. And this morning, we're going to look at our final point and what we will call the basis of our love. The basis of our love. Look at the beginning of verse 23 and notice what Peter says there. He says, For you have been born again. You have been born again. Peter now gives the foundation or the basis for the command to love that we saw back in verse 22. Remember that command there. He says, Fervently love one another from the heart. That's the command that all of us are to obey. And after giving that command, Peter now wants to ground that command to love in something that God did for us. He's laying the foundation for us. And specifically, it's grounded in the fact of our new birth. It's grounded in the fact of our new birth. Essentially, here is what Peter is doing. He gives the command, love one another. But someone might say, why? Why do I have to love my brothers and sisters in Christ? To which Peter would say, you must do this because you have been born again of God. You've been born again by God. And what Peter is doing here is again connecting us to the family relationships that we have with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. He's connecting us to this family. And notice this throughout his letter as we've been studying it. He's been talking about the family. He's been using family terminology. 
Look back in verse 14. Peter says, as obedient children. Children implies what? Family. Notice verse 17. If you address as father, a father implies what? Family. And then last week we saw in verse 22, for a sincere love of the brethren. Brethren implies what? Family. And now in verse 23, we see these words, born again. Born again. What does Peter do here? He takes us all the way back to the very moment of when we became children of God. And God became our Father. And we then had brethren, brothers and sisters, because we were adopted into the family of God. But when did that happen? When you were born again. That's the moment that that happened. You may have grown up in the church. You may have been members of churches, even as an unbeliever. But God was not your father if you were not a believer. If you were not born again, you were not connected to the family of God. But the moment that you were born again is the moment that you became a part of the family of God. Now listen, church, because I believe that this this has been lost in the church in America today. A few weeks ago, we talked in equipping hour about the church being filled with a bunch of consumers. People that just come in to consume. We show up to church, we get what we want out of it. The church is here to serve me. It's all about me. What I want, when I want. And if I want to stay home on Sunday, well, the church had better live stream the service so I can sit on my couch and be comfortable. Give me what I want. And what kind of mentality does that breed in the church? It breeds individualism, independence, isolation. Where people can just go and live their Christian life however they want to live their Christian life all on their own. And Christians in America, sadly, because the church is teaching this and modeling this, Christians in America think that that is what church is. But what you don't hear preached often or modeled is that the church is a family. The church is a family. It's the body of Christ. Where one person is a hand and another is a foot and another is an eye. We're all members of the body of Christ. We're a people of God who belong to each other and are called to be knit together, growing with one another, involved in each other's lives, serving one another, and doing things that a family does. I know there are many Christians who are committed to their families, their natural families. They do all kinds of stuff with family members. They'll drop anything and everything to go and be with their family members. 
But then you talk to them about the church. Their spiritual family. And they think, well, the church can get along without me. They don't need me. Which shows what? They aren't that important in my life. My spiritual family isn't really that important to me. But listen, church, that is not how God views His church. It's not. That is not what God commands from His children. In fact, listen to what God commands from His children. Those in whom have been born again. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Hebrews 10.24, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build up one another. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. Galatians 5.13, through love serve one another. Romans 15.5, be of the same mind with one another. Ephesians 4.25, speak truth to one another. And listen, that is not just the job of the pastor. It's our job. Everyone's job. To speak truth to one another. Romans 16.16 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And what this implied in Paul and Peter's day is brotherly love and affection for one another. In fact, listen to what John MacArthur says about the holy kiss. He says, because many new believers were made outcasts by their biological families, the spiritual kinship of Christians became all the dearer and was frequently manifested by what came to be called a holy kiss. It's a holy kiss. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying we need to walk in next Sunday and start kissing everybody. That's not what I'm saying. But it's the warmth and the affection for one another. To love to be together with one another. To love God's church and God's people, God's children, because we are all part of God's family. That's the attitude that we're to have. That's what we're commanded to do. And there are many other one another's in the Bible. Why? Because God has called us to be with one another and live life with one another as a family. As His children. Our life is not to be lived in isolation away from brothers and sisters in Christ. But with one another. With our brothers and sisters in Christ. With a heart of love for them. And when did that begin? When did that spiritual family relationship begin? When you were born again. When you were born again. And that's what Peter's argument is here in our text. He's saying you should love one another because you have been begotten by God. Now, in the NAS, you will see that word for there at the beginning of verse 23. You see that there? For you have been born again. That word for there is not in the original, but that is what is conveyed in the original. That word born again is a perfect passive participle and could be translated this way. Having been born again. One translation, the Christian Standard Bible, says it this way. 
because you have been born again. And that is the sense in which Peter uses this word. Because you have been born again, therefore this is what you are commanded to do. You should love one another. For or because you have been born again. You were born again in the past by God. And it is for that reason that you should then love the brethren. Now, think about the new birth for a moment. What does the new birth imply? The new birth implies that at one point you weren't alive spiritually. At one point you weren't alive. But at a moment in time you were made alive. You were born anew. You and I were born again. We weren't born spiritually alive at our birth. At our physical birth. We weren't born saved. You can't sprinkle babies and get them in. It's not how it works. In fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. How were you spiritually before God caused you to be born again? You were dead. Spiritually dead. But then in Ephesians 2.4, Paul tells us, but God made us alive. God took our dead heart and made it alive. And that was the moment that we were then born again. At one point, you weren't a child of God, but now we are children of God. Why? Because of the new birth. And because we belong to God, we also belong to one another. We are now members of the body of Christ. Now, let me just pause here for a moment to help you understand what happened at your new birth. What happened at your new birth? I want to give you three realities that took place when you were born again. Three realities that happened the moment that you were born again. The first reality is this. You had a new identity. When you were born again, you had a new identity. You lost your old identity and you then had a new one. No longer did you identify with the world, but you now identify with Christ. With Christ and with his people. Your old self died and you were made new. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And then in Galatians 6.14, he says, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. There's a, a separation there's a cutting off that happens at the new birth where we no longer identify with the world. In fact, I can tell you in my own testimony. And when I was saved in college, I lost a lot of friends, or so-called friends. Why? Because I wanted to talk about Jesus 
They didn't want to. They wanted to talk about the things of the world. And there was a separation. There was a cutting off that happened there. Why? A new identity. I don't identify with them anymore. I don't identify with the world. I don't belong to them. I no longer belong to Satan's realm. And we don't either, as those who have been born again. We don't belong to Satan's realm, but we belong to Christ. And we now have a new identity in Christ. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're a new creature, and your identity is now in Christ and the things of Christ. There's a second reality of the new birth. Not only did we have a new identity, but a second reality of the new birth is that you now have a new family. You now have a new family. 1 John 3, 2 says, Now we are the children of God. John also says in John 1, 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We were born of him. And because we're born of, born of Him, He gave us the right to be His child. God caused you to be born again. And you believed in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And God then gave you the right to be a child of God. Ephesians 2.19 we read it this morning in equipping hour. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You're now of God's household. God's household is not referring to a building, but it's referring to God's family. You now belong to God's family. And so in your new birth, you have a new identity. You have a new family. And then there's a third reality of our new birth is that you have a new mindset. You have a new mindset. The new birth brings about a change in us so that we have a new understanding of the world and our place in the world. Our worldview has changed. That's why I love David Wheaton's ministry, the title of it, The Christian Worldview. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> we have a new mindset, new thinking, a Christian worldview now. We no longer think like the world. We think like Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Our mind and our thinking is changed. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3-4? Listen to what he said. Philippians 3, 4, he says this, if anyone, else has a, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But, listen to this, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul says, my whole thinking has changed. All the things that I was working for. And what was he working for? Religion. To be at the top. To be a a Pharisee of the Pharisees. To be zealous for God. He's working for all of these things. His mind was set on the things of the world. On a world religion. He was after that. But God gets a hold of him on the Damascus Road. And what happens to Paul? His whole mind changes. His whole thinking changes. It's all different now. I don't live for that stuff anymore. I used to live for all of that. In fact, do you want to know how passionate I was in living for the things of the world? I was even persecuting the church. God's church. But I count all of that as rubbish. Manure. Dung. That's the word that's used there. All is rubbish. It all means absolutely nothing. What happened? I was born again. And my my mind changed. My thinking changed. I now have a new mindset. I don't live for that stuff anymore. I have Christ. And I am His And all I want to do is know Him more and live for Him more. In 1707, Isaac Watts wrote the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And he said this, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. He goes on, he says, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. What was Isaac Watts thinking of when he wrote this hymn? Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, I count it all loss. It's all rubbish. I now have Christ. The cross of Christ. I want to know Him more. I live for Him. My richest gain I count but loss. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying. My mind was set on the flesh and all of these worldly things, but my mindset has been changed. I'm a new person and all I want to know is Christ. And all that happens because of the new birth. Because of the new birth. In the new birth, you have a new identity, a new family, and a new mindset. All that comes by the fact of your new birth. And so again, going back to 1 Peter 1, here's Peter's argument. You must love one another because of the very fact that you have been born again. It's the foundation of your love. You've been born again. 
But how did this new birth happen? How was it that you and I were born again? Well, Peter goes on and he tells us about the nature now of our new birth. In fact, look at verse 23 again. Notice what he says there. He says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Notice that he says there, not of seed. What does Peter mean by this? He's saying, not by physical birth. Not by procreation. This didn't come about. Your new birth didn't come about by your physical parents. That's what he's saying there. That seed is perishable. Your parents will die and you will die. It's all physical. But you were born again by a seed that is imperishable. By something that is not physical, but by something that is spiritual. This is a supernatural birth that has taken place in you. And this seed will not die. It is incorruptible and imperishable. And what is that imperishable seed? Well, he tells us what it is. He says it's the living and enduring Word of God. Now, think about life. All life comes by a seed, right? That's how God has created this world. The plant begins with the seed. All human life begins with the seed. And what Peter's saying here is even your spiritual life begins with the seed. The seed is the means by which life begins. Those of you who love to garden, you plant the seed, right? And then you begin to see what grows. Life. He says, the same is true even in your spiritual life. There's a seed. An imperishable seed. And the seed is the means by which life begins. Plant seeds are natural seeds. Even human seed is natural seed, which is perishable. But Peter tells us that there's an imperishable seed. And what is that seed? It's the living and enduring Word of God. Yes, God saved you, but the means by which God chose to save you is by His Word. By the preaching of the Gospel. You must hear the Gospel in order to be saved. No one is saved apart from hearing the gospel, the word of God. No one is. That's often the question. Well, what about all those who live on an island who have never heard of Christ? If the belief was, or it was true, that they would be saved without hearing the gospel, you know what the worst thing is that we could go and do to that island? Go tell them the gospel. That'd be the worst thing. Why? Because now they're accountable. But that's why we have missions. Right? That's why we go and we share the gospel with them because we understand that the only way that someone can be born again is by the preaching of the gospel. That's the means by which God saves His children. We must hear the gospel to be saved. 
Notice how Peter describes the Word of God here. He says it's living and enduring. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Gospel is powerful because it's alive. It is actively working in the lives of those who hear it. Listen, church. You want to know why it's so important to come to church on Sunday morning? Because when you hear this word being read, when you hear this word being preached, something is happening. Something's happening in your own heart. There's activity that's taking place. Because this word right here is alive. And it's active. And it's working in your heart. Whether you think it is or not, it is. It's a living word. The gospel is powerful because it's alive. And it's working in the lives of those who hear it. And when you and I heard the gospel, because it is alive, it worked in us and produced spiritual life in us. But, Peter also tells us here, it's enduring. This means it's everlasting, which means the spiritual life that was activated in us will never cease. Because it was even brought forth by a word that is everlasting, that always endures. And because it is enduring, this means, this is the only means by which a person is saved. That's it. It's the only means. It's the gospel. This word enduring here means there is no other means by which someone must be saved. It is permanent. It is unchanging. There aren't new evangelistic programs that we need. Church, we don't need new ones. We saw it modeled for us all the way to the beginning. The church backs. What did they do? Preach the gospel. Preach the word. Peter stood up and began to preach. And they preached and they preached and they preached. And what happened? Thousands were saved. And then today we think we've got to come up with some new gimmicks to try and reach the world. Well, I don't know if they'll really believe it. Well, I don't know. We've got to, you know, do plays now. We've got to do movie this and all this kind of stuff. Just go preach the gospel. Remember, it's alive. And God promises it will not return void. It will accomplish everything that it goes forth to accomplish. Because it's living and it's active and it's enduring which means it has endured for all of time, and it will endure for all of time. The world needs the gospel. They need to hear the living and enduring word of God. In fact, isn't that what Paul told us in Romans 10, 16? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. James even tells us in James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. 
You hear that? How did God bring you forth? How did he save you? By the word of truth, by the gospel. It's the gospel message. It's the means of salvation. It's the means of being born again. If you want to reach someone for Christ so that they would be born again, give them the gospel. That's all you got to do. It's pretty simple, isn't it? But we've made this so difficult. Seeker-sensitive church, and how are we going to get in the doors, and blah, 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 and all this stuff. Just go preach the gospel. Just go tell them the truth. It is living and enduring. That's the word of God. And to prove that point, Peter then turns to the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 40. Notice what he says there in verse 24. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. What is Peter doing here? Peter quotes Isaiah 40 and verse 8 to confirm to us that the word of God endures forever. He says, all flesh, or we could say all men, are like grass. What does this mean? All natural man, you and I, all flesh, is like the grass that will fade away. Every one of us, unless Christ returns, every one of us will die. It's life. It's a fact of life. And that's exactly what Isaiah is telling us in Peter's quoting. He says, all men are like grass. They're going to die. They're going to fade away. And he says, even the glory of man that man puts on display, that is his wealth, his rank, his talents, his beauty, his splendor, his learning, all of that, the glory of man. Think about all the things that man does to put his, his glory on display. He says, even all that stuff is like the flower of the grass. Which we see right now is flawless here. What's happening to all the flowers? Falling off. They wither and die. In verse 25, still quoting Isaiah 40, notice what Peter says there. He says, the word of the Lord endures forever. Which means what? You know that seed, the gospel, the word of God that saved you? Will that ever fade away? Will you be born again today, but wake up unborn again tomorrow? Never. Because the seed that was planted inside of you is an everlasting seed. We know we can't wake up unborn again tomorrow. How do we know? Because God's word endures forever. In fact, this is the second time in two verses that Peter has told us about the enduring word of God. Notice he says at the end of verse 23, enduring word of God. And then in verse 25, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Which means this, that work that God has done in your heart at your new birth by his living and enduring word is everlasting. That's why we call it everlasting life. It's a promise that we have. 
But if you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you will receive everlasting life. Not life today and, well, we don't know about tomorrow. <laughs> Good luck. It depends on how God's feeling tomorrow about you. <laughs> That's not how it works. It's everlasting. It's enduring. Your new birth, which endures forever, has brought, was brought forth by the word of God, which endures forever. And so, listen to the argument of Peter here. What should your love be like? It should be living and active, living and enduring. And remember, who is he writing to? Persecuted believers. He's saying, don't let persecution or any other circumstances in your life stop your love for one another. Don't let it. If you've been born again, or since you have been born again, by the enduring word of God, this means your salvation is always continuing to endure. And therefore, so should your love. So should your love. Don't let that die. Remember, you're now connected to the source of love. Who, by the way, is also living and enduring, right? God's word is living and enduring because our God is living and enduring. He's alive. He's everlasting. He's eternal. And so should our love for one another. So should our love for one another. Do you see how being born again is the basis of our love for one another? Do you see all that is rooted in that? And so Peter tells us of the fact of our new birth and the nature of our new birth. And then he tells us in the second half of verse 25, the evangelization that led to our new birth. Look at the end of verse 25. Notice what he says there. He says, and this is the word which was preached to you. What is that word? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Peter's saying here, that living and enduring word was preached to you. That word preached is the word euangelizo, and it means to proclaim the divine message of salvation or to bring good news. And Peter's saying here, the reason that you've been born again is because that good news was preached to you. And that good news is the means by which God saved you. But what is that good news that was preached to you? It's the message about Christ. It's the message about Christ. In fact, notice at the end of verse 23 where Peter says, Word of God. You see that there? The end of verse 23. Word of God. And then notice at the beginning of verse 25, he says, The Word of the Lord. You know who the Lord is there? he's referring to? The name above all other names. It's Christ. It's Christ. He is the Lord. And what Peter is telling us here is that it was the message about Christ that was preached to you. It was preached to us. And what is that message? It starts by understanding who we are before Christ. There were sinners who were spiritually dead and need to be born again. That we've been separated from a holy and righteous God because of our sin. 
Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that good news? We are sinners. Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. He says, it's of first importance. The gospel message is so important. Church, don't ever let it become unimportant in your life. It's of first importance. The gospel. And all who repent of their sin and trust in Christ, who died for our sins and was buried and rose again, will have eternal life. Life that endures forever. Notice at the end of verse 25, Peter says this, it was preached to you. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. We talk about those people on an island who have never heard of Christ. But do you realize you have that God in his sovereignty made sure that the gospel would be preached to you. That's amazing. I mean, of all the people in the world, billions of people in the world, God, you made sure that I would hear the gospel. And that through that gospel, he would save a wretched sinner like me. amazing. It's amazing. God saved you. And the means by which he saved you is the gospel message that he made sure you heard. God didn't save you apart from this message. He made sure that you would hear the gospel message Because it's the means by which he saved you. And when you heard this message and responded to this message by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ, it was then that you were born again. You came into the family of God. You see, God showed his love for us by sending his son to die for us so that we could be saved. And now that we've been born again by him, and have new life in him, what are we to do? Peter tells us in verse 23, fervently love one another from the heart. Fervently love one another. Do you realize what God has done for you? That God took you from the world, the wretched, sinful world that you loved and were a part of, and he took you out of that world? and he puts you into his family. And what should you do now? Love that family. Love them with all your heart. 
In closing, let me ask you, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you responded to the gospel message by repenting of your sin? Your sin that has separated you from a holy and righteous God. Have you trusted in Christ who came to this earth and lived the perfect life and then went to a cross to die and make the payment for your sin? Have you trusted in Christ who was raised on the third day and offers eternal life to all who come to Him? Have you done that? If you're here this morning and you have not done that, I urge you, I call you, come to Christ. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone and receive the free gift that He offers of everlasting life. And if you will do that today, you will be a part of His family. For those of us who are born again, remember that you are a part of God's family. And what is our duty and our obligation to our brothers and sisters, our spiritual family? Look again at verse 22. Peter commands us there. Fervently love one another from the heart. May we not just listen to this command, but we, may we take this command and do it. And live it out in our lives. All for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your grace and your mercy that has saved us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that has taken wretched sinners like us who loved the world and who lived in accordance with the world and who hated you and lived in rebellion against you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that you've shown to us by calling us out of the world and placing us in your family. Lord, none of us deserves this grace. It's not by anything that we've done. For no one is good, no, not one. For no one is saved by any act of man, by any works, but all by your grace. Lord, thank you for placing us into your family. And Lord, help us to live like the family of God. That we would love one another, that we would be devoted to one another, that we would serve one another that we would care for one another, that we would bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, and that we would do it as brothers and sisters in Christ who belong to you. And may you be glorified through all of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.